one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. On this week's episode of the New Statesman podcast, we discuss the new three-tier system of restrictions. And Alva asks me about why so many people are dying at home. So we're recording as Boris Johnson is still actually speaking in the Commons, answering questions from MPs about the new restrictions and the new process for restrictions that he's been announcing this afternoon. The three-tier system that we've actually heard quite a bit about over the past few days with some of the plans leaking. But now we know for sure what it means for a place to be on medium tier alert, high tier alert. And there is a very high tier as well, but he only announced the sort of baseline measures for that. And and those measures are going to be negotiated with individual regional leaders. So Alva, is it still confusing or has this cleared up some of the um, local lockdown measures that have been sort of rolled out in a patchwork across the country and in a rather hodgepodge manner? Good question. I'm not actually sure. I think it is still slightly confusing in that I was thinking while you ran through the different levels that probably most listeners, whether they are subscribers and listening on the Monday or listening tomorrow on Tuesday, will probably have a better idea of exactly what applies in their area after watching the news thoroughly and checking with their local MP and so on. But I think that in some ways it's not that different in that medium is what we're all in at the moment. So even if you don't have any local lockdown restrictions, you'll still be subjected to the rule of six and the 10 p.m. curfew, for example. High is basically what local lockdowns are at the moment. So restrictions on indoor households mixing. I think some of those things have changed slightly depending on where you are so again that's still you know I think if you've been in an area of a local lockdown where your local lockdown was slightly different to other local lockdowns the fact that it's now just called high level probably doesn't help that much unless you're given more detail over the next 24 hours which we which we probably will see but the the fact that there are now three tiers doesn't really clarify that much in and of itself it's that people will need greater clarity and then the, the as you say the very high level is is new basically so at the moment it'll only apply to Merseyside and that basically involves 
no social mixing, um, the closing of pubs and bars, as you say, the precise measures will be negotiated with local leaders. So in Merseyside, the closures also include places like casinos, but it kind of, that will also vary depending on where it is. The high level basically acts as a baseline. So again, it doesn't really prevent this situation where you ha- kind of know vaguely what a local lockdown might mean or, you know, what very high might mean, but the, the specifics are still, I think if you're only following on a national level, you'll find it confusing to know exactly what, what the case is in your area. And that that's interesting, isn't it? Because already there are questions coming out about, because notably restaurants weren't mentioned when he was say, talking about the places or the tiers in which bars and pubs will be closed. And I think Huffington Post, HuffPost, sorry, as they're now called, have a story about pubs potentially being able to stay open if they serve meals because then they'll count as restaurants. So we always have these kind of follow-up clarifications, don't we, after they announce a new set of measures. And like you say, I think there will be some clarity in time. And of course, there's a Uh, press conference this evening as well so you know some of our listeners will be listening to this before then and some after so we can't really talk that much about that perhaps but perhaps details will become clearer during that press conferences during that press conference and over time as well but what we know for sure is that there's been a great deal of confusion and miscommunication among Mm. MPs who represent some of the places that are going to be most affected and also the metro mayors as well we spoke in the most recent podcast about Andy Burnham, the Manchester Mm -hmm. man being furious about the fact that he'd found out about Manchester having to undergo a number of restrictions on the front page of the Times rather than um, from the government itself. And we've seen a few reports this afternoon of MPs in various areas being missed off the remote conferences where they were going to be explained the measures in, in their local areas as well, with Lisa Nandy, for example, saying she thinks that the government doesn't actually know that Wigan is in Greater Manchester. Um, <laughs> you've been speaking to some people who who have skin in this game, haven't you? What's the feeling like? Yeah, oh my goodness. It was such an, such an own goal for the government. All they had to do was tell the relevant MPs what the situation was going to be in their area to tick the box labelled consult with local MPs, communicate with them before we announce this in an hour's time. And they still didn't manage that. It has been quite funny. Like I, I was speaking to one MP about it and I said, oh, I was the phone call with Matt Hancock? And they literally just started laughing. It's a very serious <laughs> business, but like really it couldn't have been handled worse. As you say, Lisa Nandy is basically going viral with her tweet about how she gathers that Greater Manchester is confirmed to be in tier two so they're they're avoiding the higher level of restrictions but she doesn't know for sure she's just gathering the details because she wasn't invited to the call because she doesn't think the government knows where Wigan is and then Charlotte Nichols an MP for one of the Warrington constituencies was invited onto the wrong call because um, they included her in the Merseyside call there are loads of examples of MPs being invited onto the wrong call for like the wrong bit of the north basically or just not being invited at all or other in other cases being invited after the meeting had already started <laughs> so it all kind of uh, all a bit of a mess but I spoke to one person who actually did successfully get onto a call with Matt Hancock at I think 15 minutes notice which is ridiculous because as many of our listeners will already know the House of Commons sits on Mondays only from half past two in the afternoon specifically to give MPs time to get to the House of Commons so they sit from half past two and then they work into the evening and then it's a sort of intense Tuesday Wednesday Thursday 
and then MPs tend to return home on the Thursday so they can have the constituency day on the Friday. That's kind of how the, the normal week of an MP works. So it's a bit cheeky of Matt Hancock and again, just slightly undermining of in this case, Northern MPs to try to arrange all these all these Zoom calls at a time when, you know, he, he really should know that they were all going to be on trains at this time. And, and many of them were and didn't, you know, and weren't able to make it onto the calls for that reason. Or were just, you know, on this confidential call with Matt Hancock about the new restrictions for, for this area on public transport, on the dodgy mm. Wi-Fi on the train, which is just crazy. But I was speaking to a few people who did make it onto their various calls and I think they weren't terribly impressed, to be honest, that there was a real sense that, that this was a box ticking exercise. Like I was saying before, that basically they, they know that there's this criticism that they haven't been contacted or informed before restrictions or announcements that affect their local areas. So this was the government's response to that criticism by giving people a little bit of face time with Matt Hancock right before the Prime Minister's statement. But it literally was him being like, hi all, you know I mean? And to all these MPs who weren't even in the right call because they've been invited to the wrong Zoom call. But, um, you know, he was basically like, hi all, you know, your your area is in tier two. Your area will be in tier three. And that's what the Prime Minister is going to say. You know, he really just a few sentences and then Certainly on on the calls with the people I was speaking to, he only took a couple of questions and in some cases didn't actually respond to the trickier bits of the questions. He was sort of, you know, people were raising questions about the messaging and whether that is going to be improved with these new supposedly clearer tiers. And he kind of responded to that and thinks that like the messaging from the government will be tightened up. But he was asked about financial support and he just didn't answer so I think people weren't really impressed. And I think they, they just felt a little bit like he was just ticking the box, but but that it wasn't a genuine consultation with those MPs in the same way that there was a call last Friday with all MPs in Northern Seats, with Matt Hancock and Patrick Vance and Chris Whitty. And I think that they felt again that I think they were given a run through of the scientific background, but not the policies so they were sort of I think there was a feeling among many of them that they were sort of being lectured to but without really being given a stake in the policy issues at stake and then I suppose the the issues with local leaders are different and negotiations have been going on between Edward Lister Boris Johnson's chief of staff with local leaders individually but definitely on on the level of MPs I think that there's a lot of them are managing to see the funny side and I suppose with very little effort from from Labour this has been a kind of a day of easy wins for the Labour Party but yeah it's just been it's just been quite a mess really and really it's been a funny day. It's really interesting. Yeah, you've really got the behind the scenes kind of picture quite clearly, because while there was also rage, which we spoke about um, on the most recent podcast, that the sort of people who are being most impacted are kind of being overlooked from the decision process, there's now sort of bafflement and kind of ridicule and mockery about the fact that they can't even communicate what they've already decided properly which is which is again telling of something we've spoken about before which is are they just paying lip service to having spoken to MPs more about what's going to happen to their constituents and lip service to caring about what's happening in in the rest of the country rather than deciding everything from central government rather than in any sincerity really taking their views into account or or 
treating them with the respect that they deserve in terms of telling them what's been decided, particularly what you say about people being in transit while they're being told and, and only finding out once the meeting's begun and that sort of chaos. It doesn't it doesn't sort of give you much reassurance. You know, this is a government that's that the whole idea of its of its pandemic response is to be ahead of the game and in control. And these last minute meetings don't smack of a government that's ahead of the game or in control. And it's very strange because the ball is absolutely in their court. We've known all weekend that Boris Johnson would be making an announcement today. So it should have been clearer to them earlier that somebody from government would need to address local MPs if that was a thing that they were serious about doing and sort of correcting the message or correcting the record on whether you know, they were actually consulting with MPs. And so just doing it that late just strikes of chaos in a way that's really unnecessary. And I, I mean, I know that lots and lots of voters are not on Twitter, but I think that particularly the case of Lisa Nandy, given that she has quite a profile now, relatively speaking, because she ran for Labour leader and she's Shadow Foreign Secretary. I do think that the case of Lisa Nandy being left out of the Zoom call with Matt Hancock will be on all of the news reports tonight. People listening afterwards can fact check that to confirm whether that actually happened or not. But, you know, I just think that those tiny messages about how the government values MPs from certain parts of the country will really resonate and will do them quite a lot of damage. But I would also add, I think, because the bo- both of us, as you were saying, have just finished watching Boris Johnson's statement, I think it's probably also worth thinking or worth noting the slight change of tack from Keir Starmer, which I thought was interesting because, again, like I've been speaking a bit over the weekend with Labour MPs just to kind of take the temperature, awful COVID pun, <laughs> take the temperature, sort of what they think with regards to how Keir Starmer is responding. I think that there was a little bit of concern towards the end of last week that maybe Labour was doing a little bit too much of sitting on the fence. Mm -hmm. So in particular, we saw in PMQs on Wednesday that Keir Starmer asked what the evidence base is for the 10pm curfew, which was read by everyone in Westminster, myself included, as a signal that Labour was maybe paving the way to vote against it. Mm. And And then they confirmed after that they wouldn't be voting against it. And so MPs have been whipped to abstain on it when it happens on Tuesday night. And I think that's a that's an interesting one. Some people have already publicly said that they plan on voting against it anyway. So Andrew Gwynn is the most prominent one. But I think privately, lots of people feel like the 10pm curfew, which clearly doesn't have an evidence base because no one from government has provided one. The 10pm curfew has been a cause of concern for lots of Labour MPs because you know, they speak to businesses in their constituency that have maybe put quite a lot of money into making their businesses COVID secure that and they just feel like they are being punished unfairly. And, you know, especially because I think from, again, like MPs who were sort of talking about their concerns about it were saying today that, you know, business leaders think that it's kind of mad, effectively, if you're kicking young people out of effectively COVID secure environments if they've been properly secured kicking them out at 10 p.m to you know to just go off to a house party or something where there's no, there's nothing COVID secure that it, that it, aside from anything else is a bit of ki- a kick in the teeth to businesses bars and restaurants that have spent a lot of money 
to kind of do the right thing and then they don't actually get to cash in on that so this has been sort of bubbling under the surface with labor but it actually looks like it might not come to a head because with all these new restrictions possibly as we're speaking and Jacob Rees-Mogg is meant to make a statement in the House of Commons on votes for tomorrow so it's actually possible that there won't be a vote on the 10pm curfew or if, it, if there is it might be packaged with different things from Keir Starmer's perspective or sort of people close to the leadership have been quite keen to explain that the problem with the 10pm curfew is that they aren't they aren't in favour of it but the problem with the vote as it is expected to be tomorrow is that it's a piece of secondary legislation. So basically it's an update to existing COVID regulations. So it includes the 10pm curfew, but it includes other things too. And because it's an update, basically MPs get a yes or no vote on the update and they don't get to amend it or improve it. So it's really a choice for Labour about whether to say yes to all of the new measures or to reject them all and I think Labour is not in a position where it wants to reject them all basically is their argument but that still hasn't really necessarily been communicated well to the public who really don't understand why Keir Starmer would give the impression that he is against the 10pm curfew which makes no sense and then continues to abstain on it. It does seem like those sort of concerns that have been you know, rumbling on about Keir Starmer maybe sitting on the fence too much over the weekend will have been allayed by his response in the chamber today where he kind of, he did signal a bit of a shift in time. I don't I don't know what you thought of it, Anush, but I thought it was a bit different. Yeah, it was different. You could tell that he was trying to get on the front foot of Boris Johnson's inevitable criticism of him, which is being used in sort of Tory attack ads as well, which is that he's sort of flip-flopping and he doesn't know where he stands and sometimes he supports the government and sometimes he doesn't. And Boris Johnson has tried to do the same thing over Keir Starmer's attitude and the things that he said about the rule of six as well in the past. So I think that the Tories think that they're onto a good thing with with this accusation that he is indecisive and doesn't know what what side to support and is just sort of criticising without really, you know, giving any of his own solutions or really coming down on one side or the other. And I think the fact that, like you say, that he was making these comments about the 10pm curfew, which, you know, any any restaurant owner or anyone you speak to will tell you, like you were outlining how ridiculous that can be. And then, you know, to then not vote against it this week, you know, that could potentially be confusing. And I do think that just by what he said today, that confusion is not going to go away. And I think that vulnerability, at least to Boris Johnson's attacks and, and the sort of line of criticism that the Tories are taking against the Labour Party on on that particular kind of, that particular weakness, I don't think that's going, going to go away just by Keir Starmer's change of tone today. And I think Labour really need to watch out for this because I, I imagine that this is one of those things that's been focus grouped and comes off quite clearly as something the public don't like about Keir Starmer or don't like about the Labour Party's response to the pandemic, which is the sort of not offering any of their own answers and just being seen to criticise from the sidelines rather than making any decisions themselves. I know we've spoken about this before, but I'm pretty sure that that's behind this sort of fault line that's opening up. And which will be why, you know, Keir Starmer has said that he's sort of deeply sceptical about this government's plan. But he hasn't really said 
what that's get what is behind that skepticism other than the the government having shown itself to be you know slow off the mark in the past and like we were saying feeling very chaotic and feeling as if it doesn't have a plan but does that mean that he wants stricter and more harsh restrictions or does it mean that he's going to abstain or vote through these restrictions but say that they're playing out well which his party's done well in terms of the research they did into how well lo- local lockdowns were working which which wasn't which turned out to be not very well at all i'm not sure if this kind of approach will will be able to control what the, what the public thinks of where he stands and um, because do they think that he's in favor of more strict restrictions or do they think that he's or do they think his criticism of the 10 p.m. curfew for example is is a statement against restrictions it's 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 confusing and like you say for people who don't follow this you know every in and out of this and don't don't know how the votes work etc it might be hard to tell where he stands and and the accusation that he's he's flip-flopping might might actually stick and I think, uh, I don't know if you saw this, Inish, but there mm. was um, a really funny clip on Gogglebox, which for listeners who don't know is a sort of TV show about people watching TV. I think it was an interview with Keir Starmer on Andrew Marr that they had as the clip. And it just showed all the, all the different Gogglebox,ers like all the different families and groups who, who watch the TV, basically being like, I, I'm really explaining for my parents who I know listen and don't know what Gogglebox is. <laughs> but they basically were getting increasingly frustrated, as you say, with the fact that Keir Starmer wasn't offering up his own plan at all. Mm. And, you know, at one point they're starting, well, what would you do? And I think that political journalists kind of loved it and thought that it was like some sort of genius focus group. And I suppose we don't actually know whether that is reflective or not of how people feel about it but I think it would certainly make sense if people felt a bit frustrated that there isn't a clear plan from Labour I think from the Labour leadership's perspective they feel like it makes absolutely no sense to be offering their you know their Mm. own alternative Covid plan beyond a sort of limited sense of specific criticisms of the economic support or you know just telling the government to do test and trace better which I suppose is ultimately really all you would want anyway but I think that their feeling is that it wouldn't be appropriate for example to be offering your own genius covid defying solutions of you know a rule of four or you know a rule of seven or or like any detailed policy proposals I think they would worry would be confusing to the public and also it's not necessarily a game that you want to be playing like you're they're the opposition and the government has the whole armory of the state behind it to come up with policy solutions so that they would be kind of fighting a losing battle but I but I agree with you and I think over the weekend again I was wondering if this will be particularly difficult for Keir Starmer with the added north-south dimension. Mm. You know, I've been thinking the whole time that, you know, Lisa Nandy and her leadership pitch really did anticipate these feelings and issues and sort of positioned herself as the person who could respond to that feeling of a gulf between north and south or just generally certain groups of people feeling very disconnected from the centre of power. And Andy Burnham made a similar leadership pitch before her when he stood and Keir Stormer didn't so much. And now, as leader, he is making an effort to bridge the divide between different kinds of voters that Labour wants to either retain or win back. But he comes across as a sort of very smooth North London lawyer. And I thought it was interesting. It was maybe just a coincidence, but definitely over the weekend, it was Andy Burnham 
and Lisa and Andy taking the fight to the government. And we hardly saw Keir Starmer. And I've wondered if that was kind of risky, but I've decided it wasn't. And again, just from speaking to some MPs who have who who do have their slight reservations about things like the 10 p.m. curfew, I think, like as one put it to me, they think that it's just smart of Keir Starmer to leave those specific questions about the government's response to northern lockdowns to Labour's best northern politicians and then to just sort of echo them and back them up because in that way you have two very very capable politicians in Lisa and Andy and Andy Burnham they're they're basically taking the fight to Boris Johnson and the rest of the government but Keir Starmer still manages to look leaderly and at a distance so as one one person put it you know he's getting the punches in but keeping his powder dry which I think you know is quite persuasive but you know I have just been wondering you know Lisa and Andy's leadership pitch in particular was really tailored to this moment in a way that maybe Keir Starmer's wasn't so much. And at the moment, I can't tell if, if anyone else within the Labour Party is thinking that way. And it's, you know, it's too late now and it's kind of irrelevant. But, you know, she has really been a great voice for Labour over the past few days in a way that Keir Starmer is less well placed to be. Yeah, and I suppose perhaps, you know, in defence of that strategy, it's, it goes into something that Stephen's written about, which I will summarise seeing as he's not here for our listeners, but he, he said that sort of Labour, the Labour Party's reputation needs to sort of catch up with Keir Starmer's reputation or popularity. So perhaps it's sort of trying to build a team of popular and impressive media performers beyond Keir Starmer himself, who we know you know, is much more popular than than his own party. So perhaps it's trying to to build a team of figures who who can who can sort of do the media rounds and and sound impressive. And let's not forget that a lot of these MPs who are affected by all of the issues that we've just been t- talking about are actually Tory MPs in the Midlands and and the North. Many of them who were voted in last year. So you know, to have impressive MPs from the Labour Party who rep- represent the seats that they still have in these areas is, is probably quite helpful to remind voters about. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call I Ask Anoush. So Stephen isn't available for this podcast. He's having internet problems. So I thought this would be a good opportunity to ask you, Anoush, about a longer investigative piece that you've been working on with Michael Goodyear on our data team about an issue that we've heard, we're hearing very, very little about so far, which is disproportionate numbers of deaths at home in the coronavirus pandemic from non-COVID causes. It's a really good piece, but for listeners who haven't read it yet, what's the sort of main finding in it? 
Well, you know, this is down to Michael, who is a data whiz and a very good journalist who actually noticed in the most recent death figures that the number of excess deaths, which is a way of speaking about deaths of all causes that are above the usual number of deaths that you'd you'd see in this period, all of those have fallen back down to normal levels apart from deaths in the home, which are still way above the average that you'd expect. So 849 more people have died in their home than would be statistically expected each week since the end of May. And most of those, you know, only 11 of those have had COVID-19 mentioned on their death certificate. So this is people dying from other causes at a higher rate than usual. And just looking into it by asking doctors, you know, in GPs, someone who was out with the ambulances, who was seconded from the fire service, pathologists, cardiologists, just all experts, why this would be. The consensus was that people are still avoiding having their health seen to, basically, because they're scared or they don't want to put a burden on the NHS. And as the second wave rolls around and COVID-19 is in the news more and we're being told to be more careful, there's a fear in the medical community that this could get worse, this situation where people are just dying of heart attacks and strokes, even cancer. um, And there was evidence of suicides as well at home without being seen to. So basically avoidably dying at home, which which is a horrible situation. Many of the people we spoke to mentioned that first government message that they put out in the first lockdown, which was stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives. And the sort of irony of that third instruction being undermined by the first two. So we're just keeping an eye on on, on this subject because we did do a piece at the beginning of the pandemic about the number of patients who were sort of missing Mm. heart attack admissions and things were down by half. And this is the result of that. Gosh, there is such a cruel irony to um, that phrase that those people were following those first two Mm. instructions so rigidly, but their lives were you know quite the opposite were not saved yeah you touched on this briefly but there's no possibility that these are sort of deaths that are happening at home that would otherwise have been happening in hospitals is there yeah so um the number of excess deaths in hospitals is down so you know you could say that some of these people who would have died in hospital are dying at home instead one of the mm. people i think it was the head of the royal college of gps was speaking to me that that could be that could be one of the possibilities behind the trend but it doesn't account for all of the numbers yeah well, it's incredibly sad and and as you say it's likely to get worse rather than better Yeah, unless there is, and this is something that people were calling for who I spoke to, unless there's a change in the messaging, which really prioritises people still seeking medical support. Mm. And, you know, we'll see in the press conference this evening um, and we'll see in other announcements by our ministers and and government scientists whether they they make a concerted change in their messaging. It it actually makes me think of my mum's great aunt, Ina, who lives in Greater London, fell and I think broke her wrist or broke a bone she's she's in her 90s broke a bone I think in about June or July but not quite at the peak a little bit after it things were starting to be eased and she didn't go into hospital and I was saying to my mum you know oh this is you know a really big problem that people you know have been told to stay at home and you know not sort of overwhelm the NHS and and then they themselves are suffering and my mum you know who has her head squarely on her shoulders made I think quite sensible point that clearly Ina great auntie Ina but also you know probably a lot of people in this situation 
aren't doing so just out of a sort of sense of duty to protect the NHS, but actually because they aren't confident that if they go into hospital, they won't get COVID, that they hear all these stories about like, you know, insufficient PPE, insufficient capacity for regular testing, you know, in Manchester and in Liverpool, I think we saw an announcement today that there'll be routine testing of NHS staff who don't have symptoms, but that isn't nationwide yet. It has improved quite a bit that people that NHS workers with symptoms can get um, tests quickly, but there's really no guarantee that asymptomatic cases of NHS workers aren't, aren't, you know, aren't, you know, flying under the radar. And so I, th- I mean, it kind of makes sense to me that, you know, a woman in her 90s who has broken a bone, but is, you know, thinks it will heal and isn't too fussed about it, would rather stay at home than, than go into hospital. So I mean, I think, rather than it just being a story of, you know, self denial and sacrifice for the NHS, I think it's a it's a really sort of damning parable about how people are seeing coverage of the government's coronavirus response and don't have confidence it's not an indictment of the NHS in itself but don't have confidence that the government is supplying the NHS with everything it needs to protect them if they go into hospital does that tally at all with with your research in it yeah I think that's right I think it's not only a wish to sort of not burden the burden doctors that you know are really busy it's also fear of the virus itself but fear of the footage that you know we've seen on television of wards that especially ICU full of full of people with COVID-19 and doctors looking absolutely exhausted you know often with no idea what they were supposed to be doing particularly at the beginning when when it when the virus was little understood and you know there wouldn't have been, there wouldn't have had to be such a strict lockdown and the stay at home, protect the NHS message. If we had the systems in place and we'd got ahead with testing and tracing and all of the things that country, that other countries, you know, some other countries seem to have got a handle on much quicker than we did. And so because of sort of the chaos that ensued, it was very scary because the idea that something terrifying is happening, not just in this country, but across the world that you've never seen before, but also that your government doesn't appear to have that much control over it either, is very scary. And perhaps you think you may be safer just staying at home and trying to um, battle it out on your own, but that's definitely not advisable. And it is far safer to be in hospital if you've had a, a serious accident or, or you, you, you feel serious symptoms than to stay at home. I hope she feels better as well. <laughs> oh, I think she's fine now. <laughs> but that's not like, don't no one should be listening yeah, to that, exactly. taking it as a don't try that as home. a lesson. Don't try that at home. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleague Alva Ray. Stephen Bush's internet was not ready to join us for the podcast today, unfortunately, but he'll be back in the next episode. We're produced by Nick Hilton, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks for listening. Hold up. 